Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Look who just kind of came through the weather and uh, came into my studio. By the way, is it still raining outside? It's still raining, yeah. Really? Yeah, yep. which is normal because I washed my pickup yesterday. You know, it's funny you should say that because I told Deanne yesterday leaving town, I snapped my fingers and I said, doggone it, I forgot to wash my truck. So I'm a little better than you by forgetting. You're, you're okay. What's going on? Okay, I'm going to say hi to some people. Okay. Seb. Uh, Gary in Wisconsin. My state? Yeah. Gary is a cattleman, and he told me about a guy by the name of Big Nose George Warden. Okay, to look that up and maybe do a story. Now, we've done one on Big Nose Kate. Yeah. So, Big Nose George Warden. i got to check that guy what out. What part of Wisconsin? I, I don't know. If you can find out the name of the town, I'd sure like to know. Okay. okay. Another guy, Emerson, he had a question about the POWs during the Civil War and the treatment that happened there, which was pretty bad. It was terrible. And then Tim from Texas, he wrote to me, and John wrote to me regarding my pronunciation of Canute. <laughs> you and your Canute. You know, I told you it's Newt. Okay, well, okay, so I'm going back. He... You remember the football coach, oh, Newt sure, Rockney? sure. Well, but... it wasn't Canute okay, okay, but listen to this, Ed. <laughs> back in old England... There was a Canute, <laughs> and that's the way they pronounced it. Really? Yeah, so I, anyway. Okay. okay, now Casey told me about a person by the name of Red Lopez down in Utah. So I'm going to look that up and see what I can find about Red well, Lopez. What about Red? I don't know. Oh. Uh, just a story that I'm going to oh. look up about him. Okay. And then Holly in Minnesota, she says her grandfather loves to listen to the shows. And uh, anyway, so hi to Gary, Emerson, Tim, John, Casey, Holly, and thank I you. Went to, I went to college up there in Minnesota. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I appreciate the, the emails these people send me and the suggestions for stories. So. All you Canutes, write him. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thank you. What are we going to talk about We're going to talk about the Yellow Jacket Mine. Where's that? That's up uh, by, uh, out of uh, Salmon and out of Chalice, up in that area, in the oh. kind of the uh, primitive area of Idaho along the Salmon River. The Yellow, Yellow Jacket, Jacket Mine. Mine. Yeah. Okay. So between about 1860 and 1870, there was a series of uh, Idaho gold discoveries that brought thousands of prospectors to this Salmon River Mountain wilderness area. Have you ever been on the Salmon, Zeb? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've been. I floated the Middle Fork. Uh, when I was about 16, and uh, I gained a huge respect for whitewater. I did not enjoy being under the water, holding onto a rope <laughs> on a rubber raft as I looked yeah. up and saw fish swimming above me. Right, I agree with you. So that's where we're at. It's about 1869. Now, Leesburg uh, is a small area, uh, and gold discoveries brought traffic from Idaho City over the Mountain Pack Trail in 1866. Uh, now, Leesburg, I just want to say something about that. Is it still in existence? Uh, not much, no. no. Now, Leesburg was established after gold was discovered at the Leesburg Mine in 1866, uh, and is actually named for General Robert E. Lee, uh, because a lot of the seller, uh, settlers were Southerners. And that's up by Chalice, you said. Yeah, up in that area. But it once had a population of 7,000. In Leesburg? Yeah, in 
including Chinese that had 100 business firms, a main street a mile long. Miners dug over 400 miles of ditches to carry water to the sluices to get the gold. And But by 1930, uh, placer mining was carried on entirely by normal uh, methods. And it actually produ- produced about $16 million in gold prior to 1938. I had no idea. So... So that's uh, these people were over there, okay? Now, there's a guy by the name of Nathan Smith, and he was an express man and prospector who had a number of gold discoveries to his credit, and he set off a major Loon Creek excitement along the route in 1869. Now, Loon Creek uh, is near Sunbeam, Idaho. You know, as you head up through Ketchum, Sun Valley, Stanley, yeah. and you keep going over uh, yeah. to uh, uh, the Yankee Fork Dredge up in that area. Okay. Okay, so he was up in that area. Now, more than a few miners who came to Loon Creek uh, decided they had to look uh, somewhere else because it wasn't too promising there. And while others were busy building a permanent community there so that they could prepare for a productive spring season. So later in 1869, almost everyone at Loon Creek lost interest in building up that uh, new mining camp. And this guy named Nathan Smith, back from another prospecting tour, had another startling new discovery Hmm. to announce. This time... The Yellow Jacket. Now, his Yellow Jacket party thought they had a big strike and a new stampede to the new Bonanza. Uh, All these people left Loon Creek September 24th. Some 400 men took off with this Nathan Smith guy, only to find that Smith's new district was pretty much overrated. Uh, One of their number, a guy by the name of John Ward, reported that Quote, gold is very scarce in Yellow Jacket, but the broken down horses and mules are plentiful along the road. I have a question. Okay. Where did they, the so-called early explorers in the state of Idaho, uh, the miners, where did they know where to go and possibly where to dig? I don't think they had a clue. I think they just looked. They just guessed? I think they just went to, they found a creek or a stream or uh, something and decided, okay. What about looking at a hill and saying, why? I think I'll spend a year of my life digging a hole there. Well, you know, how many guys did that and found nothing? Yeah. You know? So, anyway, one of the, like, say, they they had found that a member of Nathan Smith's Yellow Jacket Discovery Party had heavily salted the prospector's pans, apparently with California gold. He cheated. And then they had thought, then had disappeared before those who rushed over to Yellow Jacket discovered what had happened. So the Smith guy, he was pretty disgusted, like everybody else was. Anyway, uh, so an incident result uh, of that was that there was an early discovery of several important yellow jacket quartz leads that eventually proved to be productive. So not necessarily gold, but quartz. So in 1876, excuse me, Zeb, in 1876, a prospector's three-stamp mill was completed to test the district. Now, I want to... Explain what a stamp mill is. Yeah, okay. I don't know. A stamp mill basically consists of a set of heavy steel or iron-shod wood, in some cases, stamps. Now, these stamps are loosely held vertically in a frame, okay, up and down, in which the stamps can slide up and down. And they are lifted by a series of cams on a horizontal rotating shaft, 
as the cam moves from under the stamp, the stamp falls onto the ore below, crushing the rock. So it's like a great big crushing... That dude's got to be heavy. Oh, yeah. And we're going to talk a little more about that. But uh, So when you hear about a stamp mill, they talk about them having like a three stamp, a five stamp, a ten stamp, meaning that's how many of these... Uh, stamps would move up and down. So and how were they? How were they elevated on a chain or something that you had to you pull know, up? I, I really do not know. Did exactly. they have horses hooked onto it? Uh, what they usually did was they they figured out some way to move that uh, uh, usually by water power. Oh, to move that, uh, rotate that cam. Don't so, get your fingers in no, there. No, because it, it had to be noisy and loud. So. Anyway, so there we were uh, in this district with a a three-stamp mill. Well, six years later, arrangements were made to import a bigger plant. And in April of 1883, packers loaded a 10-stamp mill onto mules dug through snowdrifts up to 12 feet deep in order to get into operation by June 1st. Because that way, they uh, the water-driven mill didn't miss a season when power was available. So you know like these I, guys were pretty smart. Oh, they were. And uh, now, ore was uh, here's the thing: the ore was freighted with two wagons, each with four horses, down a mile and a half grade to the mill site. Okay. So from the mine to the stamp uh, was about a mile and a half. Okay. And then it'd go on a conveyor belt after it'd been stamped. Somehow, it's to be. Uh, uh, Take, get the quartz out of it, get, or gold. Or I wouldn't whatever. want to jump up on that platform and have no. that thing come down. Now, here's the thing, Zeb. Keep this in mind. It cost them $2.50 a ton to move the ore from the mine down to the stamp. Okay? Okay. Now, and that'll come into play later. Now, in the wintertime, they actually used sleighs uh, in the wintertime to haul the ore down. And like the stamp mill, which processed 30 tons of ore a day, both wagons and sleighs had to be packed into the Yellow Jacket mine. So all this equipment had to be hauled and packed in there. About 30 miners were employed there until October 1892. Then a $100,000 Colorado purchase led to a major expansion of the mine and the activity. And after a two-week $3,000 cleanup, when they took over late in 1892, Yellow Jacket's new owners saw that they needed to invest in a more economical production system. So to reduce the cost of getting the ore to the mill, this is what they do did. They decided to erect an aerial tramway, okay, the buckets to carry 125 pounds of ore each. And no packer could uh, would contract to deliver this uh, uh, seven-eighths inch wire cable that was needed for the construction of this tram. Holy smokes! Now, uh, so the company's pack train brought in in the cable, yeah, 8,400 feet in length, and they did this in three trips. Now, this is, to me, what is amazing. The cable is too stiff to coil for individual coils on each mule. So they lined up 22 mules in line. They had two men holding each mule. All right? Have you got this picture? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. The, The cable was strung out on the main street of Chalice. Idaho, six or seven runs uh, on a side being tied together. The mules were placed in the center with the cables lashed to each side, the loop at either end swinging clear of the leading and the end mule. Now, this is a solid piece of cable. Right. 
Not broken. No. Not cut. So it's it's looped around all 22 mules. So it goes around their chest and then their butt. Right. Uh, on the, From the lead mule in the front. All the way to the back. To the last mule around the back. You better have control of your mule. <laughs> We're going to get to that. <laughs> well, <clears throat> like I say... Uh, Nearly all the people uh, in Chalice. Uh, I see a wreck coming. They were on hand. <laughs> they wanted to. They wanted to see how, how this pack train was going to work. Well, they had a little excitement and a little fun. It took, like I said, two men to manage each mule for the first few days. Okay, on uneven ground. Now picture this: the individual loads would vary in weight. For example, if you are going into kind of a hollow, a, a depression. The cable would lift the center mule off its feet because really? it's going down. It's going see? down, yeah. Right now, on a ridge or a knoll, one mule took the load of maybe three mules because oh he's up on the top. My. Okay, so they say, "quote one wall-eyed cuss." <laughs> And I that's bet what, it was more that, than that. that. That's what's in the papers, Ed. Okay. One wall-eyed cuss bucked and tore around on a ridge, throwing the whole pack train of 22 mules down the mountain, 150 feet, oh. into the timber, oh. in a tangled, twisted condition. It took two days to cut them out. No serious damage being done. Are you serious? <laughs> uh, you wouldn't have loved to see that. Well, well not as really. Long, as long as nobody got hurt or now, the mules didn't get hurt or anything. No, but I, uh, who came up with this bright idea, I, wrapping the cable I don't around? Know. Uh, whoever was going to get it in there somehow, one way or the other. Anyway, so owing to the stiffness of the several cables bound together, the pack train could not make short turns, obviously, and a temporary straight trail, regardless of grades, was therefore made. Eventually, the mules became accustomed to the loading, and the entire cable was delivered without serious mishap. The tramway reduced the transportation cost. Oh, they finally got it up. Yeah, they got it in there. Uh, They reduced the transportation cost for delivery of the ore uh, from the mine to the mill, to seven cents per ton, which had been, as I re- remember, two dollars and fifty cents a ton. I now, got. I've got to ask a question here. Okay. When they constructed that, what do you call it? The, the uh, tram. The tram. Uh huh. How did they get up to the elevations with that heavy cable and who held it and how did they do that? I don't know. Come on, help me. I don't know. You're gonna have to use your imagination on that one. No. So. Anyway, we continue on. They, so here the, the Yellow Jacket's going along pretty good. Uh, now it's 1893. Uh, Yellow Jacket superintendent, he was afraid that his miners would go unpaid, so he refused to ship out his uh, June, uh, month of June bullion to, uh, production to Salt Lake. That's where it was taken care of, okay? Uh, the action almost resulted in a forfeiture of his mine, but there's a guy by the name of G.L. Sheldon, uh, he found out what had happened, and so he made a payment barely in time to avoid delinquency. Now, Sheldon took over and continued to manage the Yellow Jacket's major property for two years. He still had to overcome problems arising from his difficult location, uh, replacement of a worn-out 625-pound camshaft proved to be difficult. And we're going to talk about that. There's a guy, a Basque packer from Boise named Jesus Urquides said that he could handle Canute? No. <laughs> Urquides. Urquides. <laughs> that he could handle heavy loads. Okay, now picture this again, Zed. This is another challenge, alright? Not quite as bad as the, the cable. So, he brought the he bought the largest mule in the area. 
He then made two tripods, the height of the shaft when loaded. These were packed on another mule. The big mule was led with the load one, two, or three hours, depending on the condition of the trail. They would then stop and set up the tripods just behind the loaded mule. Four men, two on each side, would then grab the this 625-pound camshaft, and uh, they would slide the shaft back onto these two tripods and let it rest there. Okay, The mule was then allowed to rest and feed for a little while, and then they would load him back up and, and take off for so can, can you kind of see that picture a little bit? I mean, yeah. But I see another wreck, though. Well, no, there wasn't. Oh. Uh, but uh, anyway, so the mill was operated by what they called a level water wheel. Now I looked that up. A level water wheel is actually a horizontal, uh, like a turbine. It's it's horizontal and it rotates b- with water pressure. Kind of like a roulette wheel at Las yes, Vegas. Yeah, so it rotates and and. Uh, Tell where I've been. Yeah, yeah. Well, so this was connected to a what they call a penstock, which was where the water came in and then went and turned this uh, water wheel. Oh, I okay? see. And they actually had a ditch about fifteen hundred feet long that moved the water from uh, a six foot dam on Yellow Creek, Yellow Jacket Creek. To make the water wheel go around. Right. So they built a dam. Again, Zeb, think of the labor. They built a six-foot-high dam to stop the to back up the Yellow Jacket Creek. Wow. And then that moved into this uh, 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 six-foot or this uh, conveyor, or, yeah. you know, to get it down there. So <clears throat> the bad thing is, in the wintertime, sometimes the ice would uh, break loose and and uh, stop the wheel, and they had to sometimes take days to get that all cleaned out from the wow. ice. But anyway, uh, by making other improvements as well, Sheldon kept his yellow jacket mill in operation until mid-May of 1894, when he lost his entire plant in a fire. Oh, my. Took everything. So while Sheldon was reconstructing his mill, a guy by the name of Coleman turned his attention, he was from Haley, actually, um, to the Yellow Jacket Mine. And gold mining proved attractive during the hard times in the summer of 1894, and 200 men were at work there. Well, Coleman spent $50,000 putting a large flume for his placers, and two new stamp mills were under construction. And by salvaging and rehabilitating these 10 stamps from his burned-out 20 stamp mill, Sheldon was able to enlarge his plant to 30 stamps when a 20 stamp replacement arrived that fall. So he's got quite an operation wow. going here. And this is all up at Chalice, yeah? Yeah, up in that uh, Yellow Jacket area, yeah. Okay. So Sheldon also got a sawmill to provide a half a million board feet of lumber that summer so that he could build a 75 by 150 foot structure to house uh, all this new uh, stuff that he was putting Holy in. Holy smokes. Now, plans for his plant reached Yellow Jacket in 1894, and he got his mill packed in there in a record 106 days that fall and winter. Now, Sheldon's new plant provided a higher, highly efficient uh, with milling cost of about $2.67 a ton. A monthly yield of $50,000 was realized from, uh, from his ore. Now, a six-foot Pelton wheel... Under 150 feet of pressure, generated electricity uh, to operate Yellow Jacket's cyanide mill, which had a 200-ton daily capacity. Now, the Pelton wheel is kind of like, a, again, like a horizontal 
wheel that, uh, but it would generate electricity. And you mentioned cyanide. I know we're running out of time. I'm going to have to cut it off here in another minute. But was that a dangerous type of... uh... I'm sure it was. Uh, But that's what they used to to leach out the the gold. Wow. But uh, anyway, uh, they continued to run that for a few years. Generally, as things started uh, happening where it got a little worse and a little worse for everybody, the uh, uh, the ore supply uh, finally ran out, and uh, finally they only had about 15 workers there at the Yellow Jacket. Uh, they actually had three saloons, two stores, and two restaurants there. Is the mine still there? It is. It is. In fact, uh, uh, I have a son-in-law last fall was hunting for bighorn sheep with his brother. They found the yellow jacket. They went in there and looked around at the buildings. Uh, But anyway, uh, eventually the yellow jacket had to be abandoned. Uh, By 1936, there were a few carloads of ore that finally were shipped uh, for smelting to Anaconda. Hmm. Uh, basically, uh, this says that there were three miners went to work again in six, 1969 and 70, but the yellow jacket ore still couldn't be treated economically. And uh, there were some people that bought that mine uh, probably 10, 15 years back. They were going to make it a retreat. And so they had uh, a fellow that I know working in there, uh, him and his wife, uh, trying to get the hotel. They had a nice building there. They were going to make it into a retreat for people to go in there and kind of experience the uh, what mining life was like. So yeah. it's still there, and there are. So it was basically kind of a, for lack of better terminology, just its own little city within a city, right? Yeah, it was, and. It just really never produced as good as a lot of other places. You're, you haven't been there. I have not, but I, uh, after my son-in-law being in there, I'm going to... How far out of Chalice is it? You know, it's it's west of Salmon, but it's north of Chalice. Okay. So I, I tried to find out how many miles it was uh, straight in, and I couldn't find exactly how much, how far. But uh, I'd like to get on horseback maybe and ride in there and just take a well, look at that. Well, why don't you take 20 mules and put cable around them? <laughs> well, I thought about that for about and one And then second. yell, yay, Canute! <laughs> yeah, here we come. Here we come. 22 mules and me. Yeah. We just don't realize how much history of the Old West is right here. It is. It's yeah. just amazing. I, And I appreciate the people that um, write in to me and give me suggestions because I do look those up. I get so. suggestions every day, but some of them scare me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's the Yellow Jacket Mine in Idaho. There you heard it, ladies and gentlemen, from our own in-house canute, Dr. Yep. History. Yep. <laughs> God bless you, man. You too, Zeb. I'll tell you what, I always look forward to Tuesdays, and uh, we have a lot of fun, but we also learn a lot. He takes a lot of time and effort to study about the Old West right here on Dr. History. And don't forget, folks. Oh, wait a minute. i got to turn you back up. Go ahead. Okay, and don't forget, folks, I just finished Chapter 5 of my book. It's coming. There you go. Help me with mine, too, would you? Okay. Uh, okay. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.